0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. That's actually mostly true, although I I have to tell you something, and I'm just going to put it out there. Um, Ed and I just had 22 minutes worth of conversation. That was A conversation. And 22 minutes into the conversation, I said to Ed, why are you glaring at me? And Ed basically said, I'm bored with this conversation. It's not a great Catholic conversation. And we talked about it for a while. We actually—I would say, Ed, that we fought about it. Would you agree that we had a little bit of a tiff there? We were were annoyed with each other. We were annoyed with each other. Ed was annoyed with me because— he thought I was belaboring a point that didn't need belaboration, and I was annoyed with Ed because he sat there upset with me for belaboring a point for 20 minutes without sort of jumping in and saying, like, hey, man, why don't we talk about something else? And, and, uh, and so, uh, so it was not great Catholic conversation. And what we decided to do, what I decided to do, to put a tune on too fine a point, Ed thought we could salvage what we had, but I didn't. What we decided to do was scrap it because we have standards here, and we only accept the greatest Catholic conversation each week. J.D., I'd like to begin again by asking your forgiveness. <laughs> Gosh. Gotcha. For what?
1: For glaring at you for 20 minutes and getting fed up. I should have been more mature and just said from the beginning, I apologize. That's the kind of accountability that matters to me. Well, Ed,
0: I, um, I'll pray about that. Thanks. Sure. Uh, Yeah, so welcome, everybody, to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast with impeccably high standards. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting, uh, my passive-aggressive podcasting partner, Pillar Editor and co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed, is there anything you would like to say? (laughs) Sorry,
1: no. We could air I, the JD. fight. The
0: problem is I swore in the fight a number of times. And so we're not going to air the fight. Uh, you know, the, the TIF. I, I would say Tiff. You know, were mommy and daddy arguing? No, we were discussing with emotions. Is that fair, Ed? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> we spend a lot of time together. We do. (laughs) We really do. And, you know, I know, I recognize, I've been told that I'm not, you know, I'm not the easiest person to spend uh, as much time with as as you are obliged professionally to spend with me. And I've not been told that about you, but I would be surprised. Because nobody's ever worked with me long (laughs) enough. (laughs) So we had a TIFF. We decided to scrap the TIFF, move forward. We're moving forward together in fraternity and unity and friendship and all of these, uh, all of these things. Thanks for having me on the show, JD. Gosh. This was the other thing. This was everybody. This was a part. This was a part of the TIFF. Is uh, is as no? You know, I wasn't being sarcastic
1: there. I was being sincere. <laughs> I'm not I mean,
0: having you on the show, brother. It's our. This was part of the. TIFF. I know. <laughs> <This> is, <laughs> Ed's, Ed's ribbing me, and I'm just putting it out there. Part of the tiff and we're having fun now part of the tiff is is that uh, you know somehow it has become and I don't mind but somehow it has become that I that this podcast which ed and I do in this format and previously have podcasted together in other contexts somehow it has become the case that I am the host of the podcast and um, and that's fine I don't mind you know in every the thing is in every marriage and, and I this ed, this is probably true in your marriage too in every marriage it eventually becomes clear that somebody is the or is the driver now it might be that the other person drives from time, Time to time, but it's not like you get to the car and it's like, well, who's going to drive today? I don't know. Eventually, it becomes clear somebody's the driver, and most of the time, hey, that's great, that's fine, that's how it is. But every so often, the driver's like, hey, if I'm going to be the driver, you know, you can't be picking on the directions that I take all the time. I, you know, you got to just let me drive here. And uh, and on this podcast, it has become that I am the host. And I don't mind being the host. It was not my selection. I have suggested that Ed and I could alternate hosting. That hosting carries with it certain duties and obligations to move the conversation along and to and come up with these seamless, beautiful, brilliant transitions that I come up with, and to sort of have in my mind a map of the show. And 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 I say to Ed from time to time, you know, you can host the show, um, but you don't you don't want to host the show.
1: I don't. And it, well, it's not even that I don't. I I know. I can recognize what works, and as you
0: say, you <laughs> yeah. you are mm-hmm. naturally the
1: driver. In right. This, this is like
0: and, this is like oh you know, honey, you go ahead and make dinner because you're such a good cook, and I don't I don't know my way around the kitchen. You go ahead and do it. I'll just I don't want to be in your way, so I'll just be over here, kind of. It's uh, not that at all. It's commenting not
1: that at all. on what you're doing. No, no, no. It's not that at all, and I'm not being any more passive aggressive.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not. No, you're not. But now I'm trying to sort of see if I can get you to just go, go from – drop the passive and just really get into it. No, I <laughs>
1: I was – your metaphor is apt. I was basically in a sulk because I didn't
0: like the like the route you were taking. Yeah, you that. didn't like the route that I was taking, and that's fine. You, and, and basically – and more than anything, Ed, what, what, it, what it came down to, everybody, is that – I have no idea if people are going to find this interesting. But what it came down to is that Ed didn't like the pacing of the show. He thought that I was sort of – continuing a discussion on a a topic that he thought we would talk about for like two minutes, and then I was sort of belaboring into a 10-minute conversation. So you wanted me to step on the gas, and I get it. You know, sometimes if you're in the passenger seat, you want the other person to step on the gas, and I get it. So this is going to be a freaking quick hit show. In and out, man. (laughs) Uh, I can take it. Honey, however you want to get there. Okay. Well, I, I am now kind of rearranging, based upon our conversation, which was a fruitful, productive com- par- conversation of our, of our partnership, I'm now rearranging the show map in my mind because the show map that I had in my mind is not, you know, not the map that you wanted, and that's fine, and we could take a different route and all of that. So, Ed, I'd like to start, if we can, I don't know, um, I'd like to start by talking about a couple of things related to um, the Apostolic See. The uh, if we can. And the first thing that I'd like to talk about with regard to the Apostolic See is that the Holy Father, uh, the Roman Pontiff, the Vicar of Christ on Earth, Pope Francis, servant of the servants of God, once possessive of the title Patriarch of the West, but a few years ago the Pope stopped using that title, uh, that Pope Francis announced um, that uh, uh, many curial officials, uh, members of the Roman Curia, priests, basically priests, bishops and cardinals who work in the Roman Curia most especially, would uh, would have to take a pay cut. Uh, that's right. They
1: got a pretty hefty one. The Cardinals got a ten percent pay cut. I think. Well, Ed, what would you like to say about that? Well, there's a couple of things that I found interesting about this, JD. Uh, the first one is this is uh, the Vatican continuing to take what is in the context of Vatican financial reform dramatic action to deal with the looming budget crisis, which you know they are they are forecasting a if you exclude Peter's Pence and sort of other dedicated funds or income streams. I think they're forecasting a 2021
0: budget deficit of about $80 million, Now, who, which... whose budget deficit is that? The Roman Curia, the Vatican City State, the legal entity of the Holy See? I mean, there are a number of entities. We've talked about this before, but there are all these entities that are interrelated.
1: There are, but for the purposes of this conversation, the whole shebang.
0: Okay, thank you.
1: The, this, and certainly the pay cut applies to everyone, including the Vatican City State, the curial departments of the Holy See, all of it. Um, and, you know, I mean— Eighty million. I think it, I think it drops to about forty million when you roll in Peter's pens and things. Or maybe it might be less than that. I'd have to check. The point is, they are still going to be tens of millions in the red this year, and their biggest operating expense is personnel, is mm-hmm. salaries, basically. And right. so this is this is direct action of a kind you don't normally see because you don't normally get the church handing out pay cuts. Uh, you certainly don't normally get the Vatican handing out pay cuts. And it is worth noting, although some people. Um, mentioned to us that they were shocked to learn that cardinals in Rome received a sort of monthly stipend of about 5,000 euros, uh, soon to be cut. And they were very surprised by that. Um, the salaries in the Roman Curia are not huge, generally speaking. They are certainly yeah. less than you would expect to be paid for commensurate hours in labor in any other sort of organizing government bureaucracy in a Western capital.
0: In fact, I know um, a layperson who was offered a position In the Roman Curia, and uh, an expert really in a field, and the salary that was offered was, I mean, really the the person could not figure out how how they were going to just like live, how they were going to rent an apartment and find you know just find housing and all those things based on the salary, and they sort of brought that up, and the Holy See, like the the dicaster, at least where they were being offered a position, seemed like not to have any idea that this might not be enough money, which was really kind of surprising yeah
1: i mean but i mean this is also part of the reason why at the level of the roman curia and also in your average uh, diocese why so many positions uh that that need a certain level of academic qualification and professional expertise go to priests Mm -hmm. um is it's not because there's a clerical preference for having say every everyone who has a job in the diocesan marriage tribunal or catechetics office needs to be a priest on the contrary we often talk about oh well there are all these jobs that lay people could do uh, the problem is then you have to pay them yeah <laughs> so that that's and true.
0: that's a big deal anyway so one thing that's been revealed by all that is the way in which the Vatican museums is the motor that keeps the engine going I mean the, oh, yeah. one thing that's been emphasized over and over again is that the closure of the Vatican museums for the for the um, for the pandemic has uh, dramatically sort of exacerbated a problem, uh, a, a budget deficit that already existed, but sort of dramatically exacerbated it because a, a really principal source of revenue is.
1: Yeah, that, and, and to be clear, they down, were moving in the right down. direction before right. the pandemic hit. Yeah, like the Vatican said, they turned I think it was a seventy million budget deficit into something like they got it under forty. I think mm-hmm. that's or right, around forty, uh, in the space of a year. So like yeah. these guys were already taking tough action, and now they're having to go back and do it again. But this time, you know, because because they've been basically a year without. The, their basic income stream, um, or revenue stream for the Vatican City, which is as you said, the museums and things. Plus, of all all the attendant stuff around that, like you know, gift shop, you know, retail spaces and stuff around the Vatican, things like that, catering to tourists and pilgrims, basically. Their the,
0: their that. own retail establishments, or that that the Holy See is a big landlord, sort of in the neighborhood both. of the Vatican City State. Okay, both. I mean, I mean, you know, I, I I don't know what what kind of rent forgiveness
1: program. Uh, The Holy See has had to introduce for, you know, sort of retail tenants that have had to shut up shop for effectively an entire year. But I would imagine it's probably been something. I can't imagine they're going around foreclosing on people who haven't been able to make rent because they've been able to open a store in six months. Yeah. Uh, So there's that too. But anyway, so the, the only tool left in the bag was to attack the biggest line item expense they had which is personnel. And so it has been a. It was a 10% pay cut effective immediately for all cardinals. I think it was 8% for sort of senior staff across the board at the level of undersecretary and up. So really the, the sort of top tier of people running curial dicasteries. Um, and then it was, I think, 3%.
0: Am I right? Yeah, I think that's right. I think you're right about that. I think it is. Yeah,
1: 3% for sort of all other clerical and religious ranks. They didn't apply the 3% pay cut to lay people working at sort of the lower level. Um, but lay people were folded into the sort of top tier 8% pay cut if that's what they were making and and you know ha, notwithstanding everything we've just said about lay people tend to get stiffed at, you know job offers at the holy see and everything uh actually the most expensive vatican department um by in terms of annual budget is the dicastery for communications which has got by far the most people right. working
0: right that's right that's right and
1: i mean i'm i was i'm surprised every year when the when the vatican budget comes out and I see the Dicastery for Communications is, uh, you know, beats out the the nunciatures in the Secretary of State for budget. Yeah, that's right. It's like,
0: what are they doing there? Now, do nunciatures fold up into the budget of the whole, of the entire thing?
1: They have a separate line item for diplomatic, the diplomatic service, nunciatures and things like that. They have, they have that comparable and sat next to. Vatican communications in the budget, as I recall, I think it's forty-five million they're spending on the Dicaster for communications a year. Uh-huh. And something like forty-three million is what the nuncios and the diplomatic service come in, comes in at.
0: Uh huh. Okay.
1: So I, I do find that interesting that they are they are attacking it this way, um, and that's good. You know, it's good to see that they're taking this seriously. I hope that this is serious and concerted action to get it under control. The Pope in issuing this sort of the motu proprio, which instituted these pay cuts. Uh, said, although the Holy See is well capitalized, we still need to, you know, get our budget under control. And I hope he's right that the Holy See is well capitalized. I, uh-huh. um, you know, there, there's there's reason to question exactly how well capitalized it may be right. over uh, the last couple of years. But um, you know, it is. It's nevertheless, it's a big deal. I can't remember the last time anyone
0: suggested cutting the cardinal's plate. So, but here we are with the cut. Yep. Yeah. So that, that I think you're right. It does demonstrate the severity of the economic situation at the Holy See and um, and demonstrate, you know, something that—a point that we have made before, and I don't want to sort of belabor things that we've talked about before on the podcast. That's not what we're here for. But a point that we've talked about before is that, um, indeed, you know, for all of the issues that are now made manifest with the finances and budget of the Holy See, this is, a, this is another example of the way in which the pontificate of Pope Francis is— um, sort of tackling issues that have not been previously tack- tackled and being willing to sort of um, sacrifice some sacred cows uh, along the way.
1: Well, and doing it in a way that no one else has ever been able to do it before. I mean, the, the fact that all of this, the budget presentation, the announcement, um, you know, this will all be put into force by the Secretariat for the Economy, which Pope Francis created. Right. You know, the centralization of budgeting, of expenditures, of asset management, of all of these things. This is this is all stuff that Benedict kind of nibbled around the edges of doing and, you know, mused about a little bit. But, you know, the unspoken or at least I I would say unacknowledged widely truth of the Francis papacy is, you know, while he's by no means affected the kind of root and branch reform and transparency for the Curia that he definitely set out to do when he was elected, Uh, He nevertheless, I would say, has been one of the most reforming popes, uh, certainly, of the Curia and how the Curia is structured and operates in probably, certainly since the Second Vatican Council. I would say at this point, Francis has already done as much or more as Pastor Bonus.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. I I, think that's probably right. I think it's been that important. Yeah. Well, this is—yeah, this is— a really interesting development a significant change you know one point that i think a lot of people uh, didn't realize was both kind of what the what what curial cardinals are making but also the fact that um that many priests who work in sort of functionary positions in the holy see um make uh, earn a living according to a salary scale that um, will also have some cuts in it and um that uh Oftentimes, at least in my experience, kind of consulting with dioceses about their budgets and sort of getting a, a peek under the hood and a number of dioceses that send guys to Rome to work in the Holy See or to work in the organs of the Holy See, you know, a lot of times the American dioceses will have to sort of supplement the, uh, the salaries of their guys, or even if they're not supplementing the salaries of—American dioceses aren't supplementing the salary of their guys um, there's a staff house for American priests in Rome, and there are staff houses for uh, priests working in the Vatican in, 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 uh, from other Western countries as well, just things that their bishop's conference maintain and, and, and those kinds of things. So there are sort of other benefits that are accrued sort of by the local church to priests working in the Vatican from the U.S. and, and other Western countries. And that's not nearly as true from priests who are working in, in the Roman Curia from uh, uh, from parts of the developing world, a priest is—you know—the the Holy See is regularly asking bishops, please send us people to work in the Holy See. Please send us people with these degrees to work in these departments. We we need assistance because you know you need a, a big workforce to to accomplish some of the things that the uh, the uh, Apostolic See is responsible for, and uh, and those who are sent from the developing world often are not given the same sort of supplement to their income that Americans and other Westerners are. So these pay cuts. While in general, I do think that they're, um, uh, you know, it seems it seems that they're sort of recognized as being needed. It's interesting that th- there <laughs> there will be, I think, probably a bigger sort of uh, need among uh, some curial priests uh, th- than others. And there are some people who work in the Roman curia, priests who work in the Roman curia, who um, who really are by the time they you know pay rent, maybe at a religious house or something like that, and f- work out a meal plan for themselves. Um, and maybe maybe try to save a little something for retirement. they're, they're really not um, they're, they're certainly not in, in functionary positions or getting rich working in the Roman Curia. No,
1: by no means. And in fact, some I mean, you mentioned priests from poor dioceses or um, from dioceses in, uh, in developing parts of the world that might not be able to send their guys with you know half a paycheck or whatever to sort to of top it up. I mean, there are lots of religious priests and sisters who work on the Roman Curia, and this is certainly true when they take staffing jobs in places like Catholic schools or Catholic universities or things like that. You know, they, the order relies on their paycheck. It's not like, you know, father or sister, OFM cap or whatever, is, you know, getting their paycheck and just, you know, deciding what they want to do with it. The paycheck goes straight to the order. And if that paycheck takes a cut, then that's usually—that money is going to pay for the house that they're yeah, from yeah. or, you know, support right. their other—or support the mission activity of the order and stuff. So, I mean, this yeah. is going to have knock-on effects. That's that it, true.
0: You know, for, it's something that I think a lot of people don't think about, but for religious often, you know, um, a, a, a Catholic school, a Catholic university, a chancery— w- w- uh, the Roman Curia will, will want to hire a religious, a, a member of a religious order, whether a priest or a brother or a sister, for some particular job. And the religious or maybe their congregation will be sort of negotiating a salary for that. And I've heard, I've been on the other side of that conversation and heard like, well, they are a religious, they have a vow of poverty, what do they need the salary for? But in many cases, that salary that the religious is trying to sort of earn and at and a market rate usually of kind of what the position is, is because um that's sort of supplementing the, the life of the order in, in many other ways. People who work in internal jobs where they don't derive a salary from an outside position, retire, you know, retired members of the order, uh, yeah, the basic sort of sustenance and house and food and all of those things of, of a cadre. So in a certain way, a relig- when you hire a religious, in a certain way, they're kind of supporting a family, which is not always appreciated or suspected.
1: No, it, it certainly isn't. And...
0: Would that it were. Would that it were were indeed. Well, Ed, I think we've talked about this for a little while, and uh, I would suggest, you know, my job today is to move it (laughs) along. And so I would suggest that we move on. We did some very—today's Thursday. We're recording this podcast on Thursday, the Annunciation. Um, And uh, and yesterday, Wednesday, we did some very interesting reporting on development of a story that we have been— covering and covering and covering and covering for what seems like years now the sort of unfolding blossoming blooming onion of a story of the Vatican financial scandal which is like nests upon nest of stories that are woven in together and uh, and and uh, and complex but we reported on kind of a particular development and the scandal sort of at the center of the scandals the the scandal in the middle which is the the, the scandal of um the, the set of sort of complex and um, in very characterized by nearly everyone involved in them as shady in one way or another, but there's a great deal of disagreement about shady in what way. Um, the complex sort of transaction by which the Holy See, the, the Secretary of State of the Holy See bought as an investment uh, property uh, a, a property in london uh, a luxury apartment building and um and when they bought it as an investment they bought it from a guy who was their investment advisor advisor a a, a businessman named raphael mencioni and they used as a broker uh, a guy named Gianluigi Tortzi to help them kind of um uh, uh, finalize the transaction they had they bought some of the building and then another piece of the building and then they wanted to buy the final piece of the building they needed some help so they brought in this businessman named Gianluigi Tortzi well, it turned out that Torzi and Mincioni had had some previous business dealings with each other, some of which were very interesting, where Mincio- Torzi's companies, I'm, make sure I say this right, Torzi's companies had lent a significant amount of money to Mincioni, and uh, Mincioni's companies had bought uh, into debt products sold by Torsi. Is that right? Do I have that correctly?
1: You do. Uh, only in, I would add the caveat, in, in this case, Mincioni was buying into the debt products Um, Some of which have some interesting links to organized crime in in Italia, organized crime and money laundering through hospitals, including Catholic hospitals, the names of which some of you might recognize. Um, But he was putting the money he was putting into these debt products being sold by Torsi was, in fact, Vatican money because it was coming out of funds that the Vatican
0: was the exclusive investor. in. Uh, So, yeah, that was interesting. So these fellows have a history. So what happened is when the Holy See wanted to kind of finalize the, the sale of the building, they brought in this guy, Torzi. This is in 2018, the end of 2018. This guy, Torzi, says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to—you guys are having trouble. You kind of want to get out of this relationship with Mincioni. What we're going to do is we're going to use a company that I have called Goot. And— um, GOOT is going to buy up the rest of the building. And then uh, once GOOT buys up the rest of the building, I'm going to transfer the shares uh, of GOOT to you guys. And then you'll own the building. And there was some talk about whether uh, whether Torsi would like manage the property or manage the investment and whether he might accrue a commission for that. But the basic idea is that uh, Torchy's going to be a kind of a middleman. What happens is that, ha- that, that he, he buys the building, Goo buys the building, and then the secretariat's going to get the shares of Goo. But they find out that there are two classes of shares. There are 30,000 regular shares and then 1,000 voting shares. Torti transfers over the regular shares and not the voting shares. The Holy See gets very angry, and, uh, and eventually the Vatican City State charged Torzi with extortion, because they said, well, what what you did is you bought the whole building, and then you changed the deal, you strong-armed us, you created these voting shares, which left you controlling our building, you gave us the um, the the common shares in the company, but not the voting shares, which left you in control of the building that we thought that we were going to own entirely. You extorted us because you said you wanted $15 million for those voting shares. That was the only way you'd depart with that. And that was a total change. We didn't know about it. You're strong-arming us. You're extorting us. And they've been investigating this guy, and people's houses have been getting raided. And eventually they say, you're part of a conspiracy that goes all the way back to 2014 with Mincioni, with some people who work at the, uh, at the Secretariat. There's a conspiracy going on in, by which you're extorting us. That's been the narrative. And, Ed, we've broken out pieces and pieces and pieces of that narrative. And, and standing up
1: that has been uh, corporate documents that we reported before ever they made their way into um, you know courtrooms or anything like that. Corporate documents showing the restructuring the share arrangement in Goot SA, the passage of ownership of the London building from one shell company to another, the putting someone, an official from the Vatican Secretary of State on the board of the holding company and then kicking him off again a few weeks later. You know, we've been tracking all this. We also, there was a, a recording of a meeting between Gen Luigi, Torzi, and two of the Vatican's, the Secretary of State's investment advisors, one uh, sort of external guy who manages their money through another fund, which we've done a lot of reporting on. We won't go down that rabbit hole now. And also a lay guy who actually worked in the Secretary of State managing their And there was a meeting between the three of them to discuss these thousand voting shares or whatever. And in the middle of it, the conversation was recorded and leaked to an Italian newspaper. And in the middle of the conversation, Torsi appears, according to the recording, to be shaking them down. For a different saying, investment. Well, saying,
0: I need Vatican money for a different project. That he had this whole legal obligation to pay back this other company that alleged that he stole all these insurance shares. From this whole to do. Well, you say it's all to do. And
1: I, I think I can express this in a sentence and a half. And if I can, I'm going to call it a win. Which is while he was trying to shake them down, allegedly, according to this recorded conversation, saying, I need you to buy 10 million of this bond. And if you don't, I'm in the shit, his exact words. Um, And I need you to do it by Monday. He needed to sell the bonds because that was how that was part of a legal agreement he'd made with an insurance company who accused him of basically stealing 26 million euros worth of government bonds from them. But the funny thing is, it looks as near as we can figure out examining all the corporate records that if he stole, and I don't want to use the word stole because that's, you know.
0: Misappropriated.
1: Uh, yeah, misappropriated is a perfectly usable word here. Um, the 26 million that he appears to have misappropriated, it looks like he lent to Mencioni, right. who was selling the Vatican, the building. I mean, like it's very- it's, it's just very... an
0: extremely tangled web we weave. But here's what's new. Yesterday, we reported about um, a judgment in a UK court. What happened is um, a couple of months ago, Torti was living in London, and uh, the Holy See wanted to freeze his assets. They said, hey, we want to freeze a bunch of his bank accounts because we think this is his the money that he stole from us, extorted from us. We don't want him to be able to get it anymore. So because he's in London, basically the Vatican prosecutors asked English prosecutors to go to court and ask for his assets to be frozen. First, the judge does it, Torti appeals. What we reported on yesterday was the judge's decision in the appeal. And the judge's decision was to unfreeze the assets. And he wrote like 45 pages explaining why he wanted to unfreeze the assets. And there's a lot in there that's super interesting. But one of the most interesting things is that he's got an account from Torty of everything that happened. Torty has not like gone... Tortzi has not done an interview with Oprah to explain his take on what happened. Um, Tortzi has mostly been mum uh, on, on what happened. But Tortzi does... Uh, Torti does a deposition or something for the UK court. And so we've got an account from Tortzi. And Tortzi's got a totally different story. Tortzi says, I didn't shake those guys down. I put exactly what was going to happen... In the contract, I told them I was going to keep the voting shares because that way I could manage the building for them. I would own the building for their beneficial use. They would accrue the the profits from the building, but I would manage it. I told them this. Not only did I tell them this, it was in the contracts that they signed. And not only did this priest, Monsignor Perlaska, sign the contracts, and not only was he authorized by the secretary to do that, but um, some of the top guys knew that he was doing that. And in fact, Ed, don't some of the Vatican's own documents sort of support that possibility? Yeah, they produced He Torsi was able to produce paperwork that had, you know,
1: um, powers of attorney, effectively, for right. different levels of Vatican guys signing off on every stage of the deal. At one point, the pro- the Vatican prosecutors had to basically concede to the UK court that, yes, Cardinal Periline was aware of all of this and initialed off on it and right. wrote a memo saying, I understand this is for the avoidance of scandal and for the better management of everything so yeah, go for it. Right. Like this—every step of the way, at least according to— According to Torsi. The, according to Torzi and to what the U.K. judges found, the, the brass of the Secretary of State either knowingly cooperated in all of this or either didn't read or were incapable of understanding everything
0: they were reading and signing. Now, the judges um, don't say we... The judges don't say um, we... The U.K. judge doesn't say, I come to a definitive conclusion that Torzi is telling the truth, but he says, no. wow, Torzi has some documents. The Holy See says they've been extorted. The Vatican prosecutors have not given me any documents to indicate that they've been extorted, and Torci's given me documents to the contrary. And then Torti says some other stuff. Torchi says this lay guy, Tirabasi, who worked at the Vatican— um, threatened his family, told him, like, if you don't do what we say, uh, if you don't transfer the money in this way, in this way, in this way, you, you better be careful about your life and the life of your family. And then Tortsi says that before that happened, actually just a couple days before that happened, he and Tirabasi were talking about how they were going to do business together and everything was going to be great. And at the end of the meeting, Tirabasi says, hey, I'd like to gift you as a gift to celebrate our doing business together, the services of a prostitute. And it's like, whoa, this is the guy that's in charge of managing the investments of the Secretary of State of the Holy See. And is making some very serious claims against him. But those and, are not the most serious also, claims. Yeah, the most serious claims he makes against this guy, Fabrizio Tarabasi, who worked
1: for years at the Secretary of State. I want to be clear. This is not a lay guy who was a sort of external consultant. No, he, he, you know, he, he was a salary
0: man in the Secretary of State and responsible for business a lot of stuff. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. His business address, which you can find in you know filings in different places, mm-hmm. is the mm-hmm. Secretariat of State. Yep. This guy had an office in the Vatican, that was his day job. Yep, and according to Tortzi's submissions to the UK court, which the judge repeated for our benefit in his judgment, Tiribasi repeatedly boasted of blackmailing senior prelates in the church, including right. and he named him Cardinal Angelo Becciu, right? Saying, Yeah, Tiribasi was perfectly upfront with Tortzi, oh, yeah, Angelo Becciu. I've
0: got the goods on him. I blackmail him Not all the time. Not Bechu, just but Betu's successor at the congregation. So Betu was Pena-Pera. number two guy at the congregation and then was moved—at at the secretariat, rather, and then was moved to a different job and then eventually kind of lost all his um, all, all the rights of his cardinal and all the job. You guys know that story. But the guy who replaced him is a guy named Archbishop Edgar Pena Para, And Tirabasi says, I've been blackmailing that guy too. Yeah. And the judge says, well, listen, again, I don't know the veracity of those claims. He says, in fact— um, you know, doesn't I'm, seem to have stopped Tortsi from doing
1: business with him. Yeah, he says the, the weird guy. thing
0: is it doesn't seem to have stopped Torsi from doing business with him, but it says it is clear to me. I mean the judge makes a conclusion. He says it is clear to me that Tirubasi is a guy who is not unfamiliar with shady ways of doing business. Nefarious practices. Yeah, I mean so the judge it. the judge of his own volition like affirms like, yeah, this this Tirabasi guy seems to be shady shady. Is that a yes. fair assessment at I would say he's a very shady character. No, I'm saying, uh, is that a fair assessment of what the judge actually said? Th- oh, you know, judge it's kind totally The yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh,
1: yeah. And, and sort of notes in, in the way that only really good judicial writing from the U.K. can. Sort of wryly observe. I note that none of this seems to have stopped Mr. Tortzi from being eager to do business with the guy. The fact that he's
0: a panderer, a blackmailer, and, you know. Potentially, that Tortzi alleges this. Now, well, again, the the, what this does is complicate the case considerably, because in a certain way, it almost flips the whole thing on its head. Um. It could be that w- we know that there's a lot of shadiness surrounding this deal because we know about the business transactions between Mincioni and Torzi, and those are not addressed in this case. And they, they raise a lot of questions about the motivations of Torzi and the passage of money between Torzi, who is supposed to be a sort of third party fidu- uh, with fiduciary obligation to the to the secretariat, and Mincioni, their guy who they're doing business with. So there are a lot of really, really sort of tricky, uh, you know, uh, unresolved issues here. But what could be happening at the center of this, is that, in fact, officials of the Holy See did indeed sign off to the possibility that these deals are identified here, uh, y- you know, th- that what was going to happen was happening here. And then once it became a manifestly evident bad deal for them, they accused Torti of extorting them. Now, that doesn't mean that Torti didn't extort them, but it does mean that they may have, like, signed off on it before it even happened. That's perfectly possible. I mean, it's worth
1: pointing out here that, you know, the, it, it would... It would be a mistake to read either the UK judgment or our coverage with trying to form your mind of saying, well, there must be a good guy and there must be a bad guy here. That either the either this tortsey guy is you know holding up the Secretary of State for hundreds of millions and participating in a complicated fraud that goes back years to you know take all their money, or tortsey is just an innocent bystander who you know walked into this enormous mess and the guys at the Secretary of State are you know doing bad stuff and all this is. Both can equally be true. This is something that needs to be underscored here. I mean, Gianluigi Torti, quite apart from his involvement with the Secretary of State, uh, has been, shall we say, very, very close to and intimately involved with various other schemes in Italy involving accusations of money laundering, uh, Catholic hospitals, right. you know, a, a lot of weird, nefarious-looking stuff. Yes. So. Indeed. You know, there are, there's nobody here who sticks out as a, well, this guy seems like a pretty straight yeah, shooter. Yeah, what's not
0: happening know. is that we're reading the English thing and saying like, oh, well, I guess Torzi's the victim here.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think there's any way you, you can read it that way.
0: Right. Um, but what it does look like to me
1: uh, is that Torzi, as you mentioned, has been very quiet about, you know, since his arrest in the Vatican in June and— you know, seems to have been keeping his head down and not making a public spectacle of himself and cooperating with the Vatican in what ways we do not know. Um, but what seems very clear to me is this, if, if nothing else, and, you know, the UK judge was extremely withering in his assessment of the conduct of the Vatican prosecutors, who, you know, they're like 0 for 3 now in terms of cooperation with foreign courts. They really don't seem to be able to get their act together. Um, you know, the, the judge pointed out that, you know, the Vatican accused Tortsi of being part of a conspiracy with Mincioni and Perlaska and some other people going back to 2014. And the UK just said, there's absolutely no evidence that Tortsi had any kind of prior involvement with either the Secretary of State or Mincioni, um, let alone going back to 2014. Now, if you read our coverage, you would know that Mincioni and Tortsi had some some antecedent and very interesting business dealings prior to the to his involvement with the London property deal. But that to one side, what I find very, very interesting is by going after Tortsy's money in the UK, they already had um, done the same thing. They'd frozen 10 million euros, I think, uh, in Swiss bank accounts belonging to Tortsy. By going after his money in the UK, Tortsy seems to have said, "Well, I'm not going to keep quiet about this. Right. I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to talk here." And this sets up a very, very interesting situation in this story because up until now we've been dealing with a very complicated series of financial transactions. Um, which we've had to be on picking through corporate filings and, you know, tax returns and, you know, investor statements and things like that. Very, very difficult to piece together exactly what's happened and it's been very painstaking. It's even harder to make people understand what seems to have gone on and why it matters. Now, what we have here is something very simple, which is in a court document, in a, in a judicial finding by a UK court, which is about as credible an official record as you can get, we've got Gianluigi Torsi accusing a senior official at the Vatican Secretariat of State of blackmail, of threatening his family with violence, and of offering him prostitutes. Now, even if you only take one of those allegations seriously, and I would argue it is the most serious one to take, which is that this Tirabasi guy is going around saying, "Oh yeah, I blackmail everybody. I blackmail Cardinal Becciu. I blackmail Archbishop pinapara This is a real problem. Yeah, exactly. This is a ser- right. And you can't yeah. just ignore this. Like the Vatican can't just say, "Oh well, ho hum. We're gonna just not engage with this story." Like you, this is a problem because it raises the question: one, what does he have on these people? You know, in Cardinal Becciu's case, we can we can. I don't want to say guess, but we can make an informed inference that it might be some of the stuff that was eventually passed to the Pope that got him fired. None of which seems to have, you know, been to do with the London building. As I recall, it was mostly to do with his affairs, the affair, the financial affairs of his family. Right. Um, so could well have been that we don't know. But what's he got on Archbishop Pignapara? You know, what what leverage points is this guy pushing, and who's who's on his side, and who is he controlling,
0: and how did we get there? I mean, this is or is, is Torti or be, is Torti making it all up? Making it all. I mean, look. I, uh, if if, a, if I if someone said to me this person is plagiarizing themselves in a Vatican City court, I would say like oh, okay, I'm not surprised by that. If someone says to me this person is plagiarizing himself, excuse me, is uh, perjuring himself in a UK court, I, I feel like a I feel like a person would be more conscientious, uh, more cautious about perjuring themselves in a UK court than in a Vatican City court because uh, it seems to me like the UK is the kind of place that would take perjury a little bit more seriously. Um, so it has I, all this money. Uh, yeah, so I'm disinclined to like. Uh, sort of immediately dismiss it but it is possible that the guy is uh is is indeed making it up there's no honor i'm not saying either of them is a thief but if they were there is no honor among such persons um again i I, am not saying with any definitive knowledge of anything that either of them is um but if he is it's quite a uh it's quite a bluff and it might actually be an incredibly (laughs) it could be an incredibly shrewd strategy to just um to just toss a grenade inside the Secretary of State and then figure that that squabble will uh, ultimately end in things being kind of better off for you.
1: Right. And But what we are going to find out, or at least the biggest single thing from which we should be able to infer thing the state of play from, is where is and what are they going to do with Fabrizio Tirabassi? Now, right. Fabrizio Tirabassi has officially... Basically been suspended in a gray area since October of 2019, when Vatican financial investigators raided the Secretary of State, and five employees got suspended. Effectively, one of them um, is Monsignor perlaska whose name is all over this, and was basically the guy who signed all the paperwork for Tortsy. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Tiberbasi was another one of those, and he was suspended. Uh, Vatican investigators have tried to raid his home, that didn't go too well. There were problems with the warrant. Italian right. judges have. That, that was a whole nother swing and a mess from them. Um, but to, to, what Tirabasi's official status is at the Vatican right now is not officially confirmed. We've had these ambiguous statements from time to time come out of the Stampa saying steps have been taken in individual cases, but we don't know what those steps are. We don't know what the individual cases are. Um, we've had some journalists who are known to be very close to Cardinal Periline sort of quietly report that actually Tirabasi's been given early retirement. Mm-hmm. and That's he's right. you know hanging out in his beach house for the rest you know for the rest of his days and is kind of checked out um counting presumably the hundreds of thousands of euros in cash that they found in shoeboxes in his house when they raided them i don't know right but the point is tirabasi is basically in the wind now if you have someone make an accusation that this guy not only was part of a conspiracy to defraud the holy See of hundreds of millions of euros but was regularly blackmailing Senior church officials, archbishops, and cardinals, and boasting openly about it, and you don't do anything about that, that says a lot.
0: Right. That's right.
1: And I'm not saying the guy's guilty. I'm not saying he has. It, I'm perfectly open to the possibility that Gianluigi Tortsi will say whatever the heck comes into his mind if he thinks it'll it all works. It is a possibility.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Total possibility. But my point is, you cannot let that accusation just hang out there. Right. That's, that's not cool. You can't say, oh, this guy that, you know, somebody accused of being able to blackmail half the Secretary of State, well, we gave him early retirement. That That is not an acceptable resolution to this.
0: Right. That's so right. So
1: something's got to give.
0: That's somebody's, right.
1: Yeah. Somebody's got to go to court.
0: Yeah, that's right. Okay.
1: Should we move on, J.D.? If you like. Uh... I, I would like, J.D., I tell you what I would like of all things. I would like if we could spend a little time in the back end of this episode. Uh, you, I know, get much more feedback from listeners and emails than I do, possibly because, as as you noted at the beginning of the show, you tend to, you know, take first chair in these conversations and, and be a little bit more conversant and approachable. And generally speaking, a nicer guy, and I tend to be sulky and passive-aggressive. I,
0: I wouldn't I wouldn't say that. You've shed, you've shed, shed the passive-aggressive. I think there's been a lot of growth even in this show. And, and I, for one, am proud. Um, so
1: anyway, there were, there were some things that people asked us to, to, to develop further, to develop our thinking further on, to, to retrace our steps and, and spend some time swirling the brandy at the bottom of the glass for a moment and holding it up to the candlelight. Uh, and, and I... I confess I don't know what those are, but I'm keen to find out.
0: Yeah. What we're going to do now is uh, – I, I do. I get I hear from a lot of you who are listeners, and I am grateful for that. And a lot of you have questions or things that you say, I'd love for you to talk about this, or I have some questions about that, or I, – I, um, you know, those are the two things that you say, I suppose. I'd love for you to talk about this, or I have some questions about that. Or actually, some of you say, I have some objections to this, and fair enough. good Good for you for – Letting us know, um, I appreciate that. We're just going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about some of those things. You know, we're just going to take a few minutes. I want to kind of take like three pieces of feedback from readers and just kind of uh, just kind of weigh you know talk about them a, a little bit. If if that's uh, well, um, no, not if that's all right with you. I just that's what I would like to do now. So the first thing that I want to do, and now I have to kind of pull them up. But uh, somebody wrote to me the other day with a kind of an interesting. Um, thing. Hold, give me just one moment, moment here. Well, I, I if I don't find it, it's fine. The, the one that I want to start with uh, is an email that I got from uh, a person who listens to the show, and I'm very glad that they listen to the show, and thank you for listening to the show, all, all of you who do. Um, this person um, basically wrote to me to say, hey, thank you, and um, you guys talk, and rightly so, about a lot of the challenges in the life of the Church, like we've just been doing about Vatican finances. But, you know, he asked a question, Ed, that I asked you um, last week, but I think he was sort of asking it more broadly. Namely, like, what are the reasons for hope? What are the sort of positive points of view, you know, positive things in the Church that, that we can look to? And I, I've been thinking about this a lot Because I I, I appreciate it. So I found the email now. Dear Mr. Flynn, my name is... um, I just subscribed to the pillar through the recommendation of... um, I wrote because I have got one question. A lot of your news is of woe for the church, and rightly so. There's so much that is going wrong, and everyone knows it. But is there anything looking up, any reason for optimism about the state of the church? Thanks in advance for your consideration. Regards, this listener. And, uh, and, and I was thinking about that, and, um, you know, I, I was thinking, well, I could sort of tally off some cool things and good things that are, I think are happening in the life of the church. But I, I, I want to talk about it from a broader level because I want to make sure that our coverage—I want to set the context for our coverage of the life of the church. Um, I am and wish to be uh, and, uh, and hope that I am and have given my sort of life over to being um, a son of the church I um, believe wholly and entirely all that the church teaches and professes to be true, and um, and I believe that the church can um, sanctify me, uh, make me uh, a saint um, by means of uh, the sacramental economy, which she dispenses, by means of the governance of the church's legitimate authorities, and um, by means of the church's teaching uh, the Church's magisterium, the Church's unpacking in uh, in a particular unique and, and uh, particularly graced way uh, of the deposit of faith. Uh, I believe those things. I, I wish to be a son of the Church because I wish to be a saint and spend eternity with God, and I believe that the Church is the sacrament of salvation. That is, for me, like the whole reason to do what we do, which is to report on the life of the Church in a way that often reports on sort of the institutional challenges and institution, even institutional failures and, um, and you know, sort of personal failures among person, persons of leadership in the church. The, the reason for me to do that, and I, and I think this is true for you too, is um, because uh, as a member of the church as both a divine and human institution, I sort of want to help using kind of whatever formation experience that I have as a as a journalist and as a canon lawyer and a person who's kind of worked in and hung around the church for a long time, I sort of want to use those things to help us as well as we can sort of take the specks out of our own eye, um, that I, a part and piece of the church, want to help us to like be um, as members of the church and in a corporate way to be as holy in our humanity as we are in the divine reality of the church. And so um, it is precisely because I am hopeful about both the present and the future of the church that I think I do this kind of work, and I think that's true for you, too. And I, I don't say that in the abstract. Like, if I didn't sort of believe in the life of the Church, and if I wasn't, like, genuinely believing that um, by being sons and daughters of the Church is the means by which we might um, have intimacy for eternity with God, I, I'm not sure that I would be, like, all that concerned about um, Vatican finance scandals. But for me, they're sort of one and the same.
1: Yeah, I I think that's true. I, you know, I, it's been both my, and I think to an extent your Career experience that you know we've ended up falling into into niches where we end up serving as sort of the kidneys in the life of the church from time to time, you know having to sort of sift through and strain out and
0: (laughs) I I often say colon but yeah either way
1: yeah
0: (laughs) I hadn't thought of it quite that way but yeah okay
1: (laughs) Um, I like yeah but you know to sort of clean the bloodstream a little bit and to and to filter out the stuff and I think that is important that I want you know I I don't report and you don't report things that we find uncomfortable or scandalous in the life of the church because we revel in the scandal it's because we think that corruption in the church is damaging to the body of Christ and we want to excise it from the body of Christ to the greatest extent possible but also i mean it's to be clear i and it's a spiritual discipline and it's one i i need and i need to you know make sure that i i keep fostering is uh, you know reporting on things like for example Vatican financial scandals is something that needs to, you know i needs to make me constantly examine my own conscience not just about why are we covering it and how are we covering it and things like that but also my own life to see that the sins of people in the Vatican are no different to my sins that the sins to which they are tempted are no different to the sins to which i am tempted and you know when talking you know it's it's kind of there's a a kind of comedy in the difference in scale of a 350 million euro building and all of the weird stuff you can do with the money in between those two things. And, you know, my own modest ambition to always be one step away from buying a new watch, for example, but to see that I also can be tempted to have a disordered relationship with money and to remember that the money that I have really properly belongs to the poor and also to the church. Um, So I... I, there, there is that to it. But also, I mean, we had, and, um, you know, talking about the, the person who wrote into and said, is there anything we can offer that's, you know, a little more positive or whatever? You know, I do want the pillar to not be, a. I don't want the pillar to be a sort of scandal rag. I don't want it to be the place where you're going to get the bad news right. straight. You know, I want it to be all, all, all a fair reflection of the life of the church. And I think, you know, the pandemic finance reporting, which we haven't talked about, but that we did this week, that was, you know, a, a three part series on how parishes in the United States fared during the pandemic and really unpicking misconceptions that I had. About what I thought would you know be reflected there, I thought it was it's fascinating work, and it's the kind of deep dive stuff that we've that we self-conscious that we wanted to do when we set this place up. And it's you know that's by no means a bad news story. I mean, yeah, the church had a hard year during the pandemic, but you know I think what could be drawn out of that is by no means all bad news. So there's that. Also, you know, you asked me last week, you know, for some good news, something I was focusing on that was good, good in the life of the church, whatever. I basically drew a blank, um, and and you might, J.D., you might think and you might reasonably think that I'm the sort of person who ignores when you say things like that to me and I, I don't reflect any further on them and that I carry on doing exactly what I'd like and uh, pay you no further heed, but it's not true. I would um, never think that. Well, you should. because <laughs> I'm than just not kidding. It I often think that. Yeah, I figured. Um, but in that case, I, I, that stuck with me, and it was one of the reasons why we went looking for someone really interesting that we could talk to and run a long interview with and, and speak to. And so we had a two-part interview with Cardinal Napier this week which is full of
0: great, really stuff. good stuff, really thoughtful stuff. Yeah, I mean, I really,
1: really cannot stress enough if you have, not if you have the time. If you don't have the time, make the time. But read this whole thing. I mean, this this is a cardinal who is a deeply holy man who has lived through an incredible period of history in his own country. You know, this is a guy who was born in. Uh, You know, born right at the end of the the Second World War, lived and grew up through the imposition of apartheid in South Africa, was a bishop during the fall of the racist regime in South Africa, has seen the explosion uh, of Christianity on that continent, has participated in two conclaves, has, um, you know, been to the Synod of Bishops on the young people and the Synod of Bishops on the family, and talked to us about all of it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's great stuff and yeah. it's, you know, it's not negative and it's not, you know, critical order. And this is a guy, I mean, Cardinal Napier is such a smart guy. I mean, he's such a, he's such a holy and thoughtful man. Like this is a guy who thinks and speaks in prose, right. not just in paragraphs, just in sort of
0: continuous prose. That's right.
1: Um, it, it's really great. So that, that, that is a good thing.
0: Yeah, I, I think—I'm I, glad you say that because I think in general, yeah, what is a reason, you know, what is the—this guy's question is sort of like not what's a reason for your hope, but like what are the things to be—to see in positivity in the life of the church? I, I like—I see far more, maybe I, I see far more in positivity in the life of the church— than, uh, than, than anything else, because the life of the Church—a piece of the life of the Church is the Roman Curia and the USCCB, and we cover that stuff because we want those things to, to reflect the teachings in the life of the Church, and we want it to help in whatever we can, and sometimes that's by a measure of public accountability. But I see far more in the life of the Church, which is like transformation and holiness and proclamation of the gospel and um, gosh, pe- <laughs> working—I I don't just say this to pander, but like working in a parish, working in a chancery, those are really— um, those are hard things. Uh, working in a Catholic school, those are hard things. They come with a lot of crosses. And um, and I'm blessed to just like know uh, a lot of people who have like given over their life uh, for um, for far less like public, uh, to the extent that people sort of, to, to the extent that, well, to the extent that people listen to us when we put up, make a podcast or whatever else. Um, I know far many more people who do not have the kind of public platform that we have at who are, on a daily life are like a daily basis are like giving themselves over for the proclamation of the gospel or formation of people in faith, clerical, lay, and religious, and um, and I know so many people who are in, in their in their daily life are like living kind of extraordinary vocations of holiness and extraordinary missionary activity, and um, and all of that is rooted, all of that the source and summit of all of that is the fact that um, at at. You know, in every in, at every altar, or, well, at m- mo- nearly every altar a- 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 around the world, every day is offered the Eucharistic sacrifice, which is, um, which c- it contains for us like the transformation of our entire lives to be configured to Christ for all eternity. Um, that p- people are baptized into a new reality, which is the in- inner life of the Trinity, and gifted with being able to love how God loves. Um, it's precisely because I'm like bowled over with um, hope for the transformation of the world through the proclamation of the kingdom and the sacramental economy of the church, that I want us to be better at the things where we're failing. Yeah. So thank you for writing, listener. And uh, and that's my answer to that. Now, the next one is, uh, we're going to do two more sort of listener things. The next one, um, I wish these were, um, it, uh, do, you, uh, do you listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me? No, but I,
1: I think I know what that
0: is. It's a show on NPR that's funny, and they have a thing called a listener limerick challenge. I wish we were doing listener limerick challenges instead, but we're not right now. We're Wait, doing listener feedback. We have to respond to these things in limericks? <laughs> we're not going to. The next one is— Because uh, I, I would
1: lose. Your your spontaneous limerick capacity is
0: is one of the things I envy most it's about you. It's one of the rare poetic gifts that I have. Um, the next one is uh, is a piece of feedback that we, you and I both got, which is— um, some objection to I mean some genuine objection to the way in which we sort of used terminology last week in talking about the CDF's document on um, the blessings of same-sex couples. And the objection that we got, which came in an email that I, I won't read, but the objection that we got, which came in an email from a longtime listener actually was um, that we were uh, a couple of things, but one of them was the sort of use of the term um, gay in an unqualified way. that is to say that I was I think I was talking about, You know, uh, Catholics who are gay, da 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 da, or if you know the Catholics who are gay have responded in this way, or or something like that. And and there's a there's a there's a long sort of history associated with that term, where um, you know many people in the church say that um, we ought to be careful with language in such a way that we do not sort of um, affirm a cultural trope, a a, a cultural sort of. a self-definition that is predicated upon sexuality. So, a person who, sa- who says, "I'm gay," um, or "I'm a lesbian," or "I'm straight," or "I'm trans," well, any of those things, it's sort of a, it's sort of a, con- a self-conception that is predicated. Uh, the argument is it's a self-conception that is predicated upon sexuality, and it is far better for us sort of not to use um, a, a, a trope like that, but to say, "Well, that that is a person who is um, same-sex attracted," or something like that. Um, because we because no one should sort of be we should not sort of affirm this um, ever-increasing cultural idea that reality is, Um, subject or anthropology is sort of subject or or personal human nature is subject to self-definition or that sexuality is the sort of defining or or that like sexuality is the kind of thing in which there's sort of like these sort of anthropological categories of sexuality instead of just a sexual order to which we're all called even while we all have temptations and inclinations that go in different directions. So there's an objection. There's been an objection in many corners of the church to to using the language of saying that someone is um, gay or lesbian or something like that, and I used it. And... For myself, I, I've been thinking about that all week since we heard from the person. Um, and I, I, I appreciate the argument of, of people who say, well, we shouldn't use that language. However, I find often they do a sort of substitutional thing where they just say like, uh, well, they, they just use a term that is for some reason more acceptable where they say, well, that person is same-sex attracted or same-sex attracted Catholics. Like there's another term which is essentially analogous that is used um, in in the same but, – but with the same sort of – in the same sort of rhetorical position, and it seems to me that it's just sort of substitutionary language, but it is is not all by itself sort of addressing the anthropological problem that people are, are raising here. What I often do in writing, and what I think is the right approach, is is if I want to talk about you know if I want if I'm talking about this, what I often do in writing is um, to say uh, a person who identifies as gay or Catholics who identify as LGBT, because um, I I think there's a there, there, there's a weighing exercise here, right? One is um, Uh, with a couple of factors one is accuracy one is sort of uh, respect which is genuinely important and I want to kind of come back to that one Uh, one is just clarity Um, and then you know one is correctness right And, and and we always have to weigh all of those things in all communications all of the time and, uh, and and one way that I tend to do that in writing is to say a, a person who identify as gay because I don't think, insofar as I can tell, you know, a Catholic who identifies as gay or something like that or Susie who identifies. I, I don't think that that's disrespectful. And so far as I can tell, no one has ever told me that that, that, they, that that seems to be disrespectful. And if they did, I would then want to think about that and talk about it more. Um, I don't think that it sort of affirms an uh, anthropological principle which i am sort of required to object at all uh, object to or something like that um or to which i actually ob- object to um i don't think it sort of identifies the person solely by virtue of sexual inclination or orientation um and uh, and so i think it sort of checks the boxes in a way a, a way to do that um but <sighs> I, I it seems that i didn't do that in the podcast last week um and I think that that weighing exercise has to sort of be taken into account um, because I don't—I think it can be—I think it can be just as problematic. It, it, it can unquestionably be problematic for the church to sort of affirm in an anthropo- in anthropology that is not Christian anthropology. It, it can be. At the same time, it can be just as problematic in a different way um, to, like, be unable to engage in conversation with people Because of language which is uh, like indecipherable to them, uh, unintelligible to them, um, or to which they have like said, is uh, for reasons that are, you you know, for whatever the reason, um, I I do not listen to you when you say this because I perceive it to be. Offensive. Now, you know, whether or not like there can then be a discussion about like, well, is it offensive? Is it, is it not offensive? But the point of communication is like to actually be able to engage with people and to be able to be understood and understand and understand. And if there are like profound stumbling blocks that that has to be taken into account as well, as well as correctness. And so I, I, I feel like that's a factor. Um, I feel like the question, you know, at the same time, the question of like not affirming sort of something is, is a factor. My children, some of my children ha- have Down syndrome, and there's like a big movement in the Down syndrome community, like to, to, to ensure that people use what's called person first language. So in other words, we would say, you know, my son Max is a person with Down syndrome instead of like, my son Max is a Down syndrome kid, as if to convey that that is the whole the sum total of his identity. You know, I, we don't want to affirm that anthropological. Um, uh, error or categorization or something like that. So I understand that point as well. I think all of this is, a, my point is, I think all of this is a weighing exercise and um, and I appreciate the perspectives of all. I, I, I don't know. I, at the end of the day, it does not seem to me to be it does not seem to me that there is a hard and fast sort of teaching of the faith on the use of language in these ways, or that there are like necessarily errors in the faith that are capitulated by virtue of one way or another. But I'm, I honestly, yet I must admit, I'm still I'm genuinely thinking through these things.
1: Yeah, um, you are generally speaking more thoughtful about these things <laughs> than I am. Well, you're making people faces, writing in, what for we're example. Talking? No, no, no. I don't mean uh, about the issue. I mean about people writing in. So I didn't pay quite as much attention to. The email that uh, that prompted this conversation, as, as you did, uh, but I, I guess um, a couple of things occurred to me while listening to you. Uh, the first is there there is language with which I am uncomfortable uh, using or appearing to capitulate to or affirm, particularly in print, uh, and I and I definitely would um, include the the sort of ever expanding accordion like acronym of lgbt etc 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 and now we you know people put plus signs after it as well um because i think that is a distinctly that that is that is making associations that i don't believe are are valid at least from a, a catholic perspective and it is it, to my mind definitely a socio-political choice to to include them together so for example transgender issues and uh same-sex attracted people or gay people or whichever way you choose to affirm them and refer to them in this uh, particular thing. But, you know, for example, to put those two um, issues in in the same thing, I think is is a political choice, is an anthropological statement. And it's not one that I I see reflected in the relevant parts of church teaching to it. You don't see transgenderism coming up in the catechism in the same section as people who experience same-sex attraction. It's not the same thing, so I, I would not be comfortable using the language of LGBTQI plus whatever because that that to me is making an association and equivalence between issues uh, that I don't I don't agree with. Um, so there's that. On the subject of language, like people who experience same-sex attraction versus people who identify as gay versus gay people versus homosexual people versus people who identify as homosexual. I mean, I think a lot of this is conversational context is important. Um, You know, you can mean a lot of, you can mean at least two things by saying gay Catholics, for example. You can, you can mean Catholics who are, who consider themselves to be gay, who are living their life primarily through the experience of being gay or at least. deeply informed by their experience of identifying themselves as gay or you could mean that there is an entire section of the church the people a portion of the people of god who should be defined and referred to as and a space cleared specifically for them to be gay and one of those i think is a reality that is the former that there are catholics who consider themselves gay refer to themselves as being gay and who experience their life either primarily or at least in large part through the experience of being gay, and that's just a fact. Now, you can you can have a very interesting conversation about how the church should engage with those people and what that should look like. And I think that is necessary, and I think it's part of what we were talking about last week. But at the same time, I, I think it is important not to capitulate to the idea that um, there there's a there's a sort of gay Catholic identity that has to be either created or, or made space for, because in the end, we are Catholics. That's what we are. We don't define ourselves, certainly not by um, a sexual orientation or inclination, um, or any other uh, similar kind of human appetite or instinct or impulse. So that's, not, that's not an authentic Christian anthropology. Um, so again, I think a lot of this has to be worked out in conversational context, that one can say, Uh, gay Catholics in one way and mean one thing and gay Catholics in another way mean another thing. And a lot of that is cultural context. So while I I think um, it's important not to become sort of casually accepting of um, cultural language around these things that does, I think, try to shape association and thinking around these issues, like ever-extending acronyms, um, I, I think it's equally... I notice in, in people who tend to say, well, you shouldn't say gay people. You should say, and then they'll propose another word, which is, as far as I'm concerned, the same as saying gay. It's just deliberately pejorative. It was equally defining of a person by their sexual orientation, which negates the sort of anthropological point of saying, well, you shouldn't talk about gay people, quote unquote, because they're all people and you can speak about people who experience same-sex attraction or whatever. But if your answer is, well, no, don't call them gay call them something else because i'm more comfortable with this term because it's clearly negative then that's not that's that's not um it's not even not constructive it's it's illogical it's a fallacy you're still conceding the point that you're supposedly objecting
0: to which is you're defining a person primarily by their sexual orientation now ed you uh cautioned when i said that this was one of the things that i want to talk about you cautioned against it you said look if we talk about this what's going to happen is that um it's going to become, in one way or another, a, a big to-do, and the reason for that is because this is an extremely, th- this is a this is a topic of conversation that is uh, um, uh, fraught with strongly held opinions on, um, on 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 many different sides, extremely strongly held opinions on many different sides, many of which are held by people who perceive that their opinions are like um, uh, day fide teachings of the church, or which are. Uh, deeply, deeply personal to them, and uh, and so you said we should be we should think twice about whether we want to have this conversation. And I said, look, well, if we're not, if we can't have it, <sighs> if we can't have it on our show. You know, w- when can we have it? The, the pe- people are uh, the Catholics. Did you just are, say if
1: we can't talk straight in a barbershop, where can we talk?
0: Yeah, I don't know what that means, but sure, like okay, th- never mind. this is a classic is a, film. Ice okay, um, ca- Catholics are. Uh, talking about this, how to how to how to talk about issues which are w- where um, the teachings of the church um, diverge broadly from sort of prevailing cultural nor- norms, and at the same time, um, the, the 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 challenge is to be able to identify that without sort of um, so politicizing the subject that people who are um, made in God's image and uh, beloved children of the Father and um, for whom we wish to proclaim the gospel are uh, sort of. Uh, unable to—feel themselves unable to engage in the conversation. And then, you know, every time you say that, people say, well, maybe the feelings aren't legitimate. Okay, but um, if we must be all things to all men, then I think we do, like as proclaimers of the gospel, have to think about the way in which we're heard. And all of these things um, are—all of these things are challenging, and knowing sort of what the right sort of— direction forward on these things is challenging it's challenging for me i think it's challenging for you i think it's challenging for for everybody and um and i think i think it's okay to talk about that i'm sure that there will be people who listen to the show who say in in one way or another either the way that you're talking about this is denigrating the teachings of the church or the way that you're talking about this is not respectful I, i have tried to personalize this as much as i can i i have tried to think about um when I when when we talk about sexuality um or especially when we're talking about issues related to homosexuality in the life of the church I I have tried to um think about people I know who identify as gay who um uh, who who identify in whatever way that 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 they say that um people I know who who would be identified as gay or identify as gay or same-sex attracted or whatever language they use um I have tried to think about okay um as I discuss the teachings of the church um, not sort of am I doing that in a way that is sort of respectful and compassionate and sensitive to an abstraction, but am I doing that in a way that is respectful and compassionate and sensitive to Bill or uh, Cindy or whatever? Um, in order to, like, think through, like, how will I engage and how do I engage with real persons who um, who have different kind of disorder sexuality than I do in, in many ways, right? I mean, we all have uh, – we all have um, – uh, various ways in which uh, our sexuality needs to be purified and reformed and and, um, and integrated wholly into our identity as sons and daughters of God, right? But how will, am I, like, in talking about this in a way that reflects what is true and at the same time, like, I would perceive would be respectful to X, you know, to to, to Bill or Cindy, whom I actually know and care about and think well of and and consider to be a friend and these kinds of things, and for me that that has been um, helpful. But it also the other part of that is that I also know that like well um, those friends are people who if I don't quite know how to talk about a challenging issue, give me grace and I uh, are gracious towards me and I must be gracious to them and all of us you know who who know each other must be gracious to each other as we learn how to talk about difficult issues the challenge when you start talking about these issues sort of in a large scale is that for some reason, we believe that um, once we have left a personal conversation with a person that we already consider our our friend, we sort of are absolved of the obligation to like be gracious or to consider that we're all sort of learning about how to talk about things that are challenging. I believe all of the teachings of the church to be true. I affirm and uphold them. And and I don't always know entirely uh, how to talk uh, about them in their fullness in a way that will be um, not only true, but also like effect, an effective proclamation of the gospel, uh, and I think that's all that I'm all that I'm saying here. So you know, if we if we don't do it in the way that um, a people think is right, I, I'm sort of having this conversation as a placeholder to say this is something that uh, on this issue and probably many other issues, this is something that I as a as a as a Catholic person am learning, like how to do in a way that both re- it reflects the teachings of the church to be true and is genuinely respectful without sort of throwing out the baby with the bathwater in either direction. And I think, honestly, I think that's probably where most practicing Catholics actually fall on questions like that.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I do think that, um, you see, part of the reason why I said we could get in trouble for having this conversation is because what I meant was I could get in trouble for having this conversation. Um, but so something I've noticed and I'm trying to figure out. I'm trying to figure out on the fly how I want to put this. Um, a proper announcement of the church's teachings on issues that are central and sensitive to people's lives, most especially human sexuality, um, is is very important. And when we're dealing with conversations around people who identify as gay or gay Catholics, or however you want to however you want to phrase it. Um, it's important to know that how we articulate and speak about and publicly witness to the truth, the full truth, and nothing but the truth of the church's teaching is important because that and the articulation of the teaching of the church is a work of evangelization for good or ill, and it can definitely be for ill. Um, and it's not just Catholics who are same-sex attracted, uh, who can be alienated or put off or turned away from the church by this, that if you have and i and i believe this to be true the the level of sort of magisterial education um you know grounding in the teaching of the church that many catholics in the pews have is basically that of their sacramental formation which in a you know in the best case scenario ends at confirmation which is what 16 for most people so if you're you know if that's where your understanding of church teaching and your education in the teaching of the church really finished, you're, you're, to, you're to a great extent sort of making an act of faith by saying, well, there is the teaching of the church. I don't know quite what it is, um, but I'm prepared to believe in it, even if I don't know quite what it is and accept what the church teaches, which is good. And that's a, that's a noble act of faith in the church. But if you then have someone come along and says, well, the teaching of the church is, and then announcing it in not just contrarian terms, but terms of violent conflict um, with the purpose of doing harm to people, to pushing people away, to alienating them, um, then what you can end up doing is you can also end up turning Catholics who don't necessarily have a full understanding of what the church teaches in the first place against the teaching of the church, still without them having a full idea of what the church teaches, that you can end up acting as a, a poor evangelist, to other Catholics as well. And I think that is why, in large part, for example, you have survey after survey saying X percentage of um, American Catholics, which I also, by the way, would say is just as problematic a phrase as gay Catholics. <laughs> um, you know, I anyone who says you can't be a gay Catholic but says, but I'm an American Catholic, I would say, well, that's stupid. Don't, don't say that. Um, because it's the same thing. You're qualifying your Catholicism. You're qualifying your baptism. You can't do that. Um, but anyway, the reason you have, I think, survey after survey of people saying um, that they 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 think the church should recognize gay marriage, Catholics saying this, that they should, the church should recognize gay marriage or the church should change its teaching on human sexuality. The reason that they, they say this, I think, in large part, is because they don't know and they have not had explained to them in a systematic and intelligible way what the church's teaching on human sexuality is and that when it has been proposed to them, it's been either... It's been, it's been warped or distorted in the telling, either for one side or another. And so it's possible to give Catholics a miseducation um, in the faith, even in the attempt to defend the faith. And I think that is a real problem as well. To, to make a clear distinction between, it's one thing to say that the church's teaching needs to be presented in its fullness and without compromise, which it does. You know, the, the truth announced by the church is not something that's up for negotiation. It's not something that's up for debate. But at the same time, to say, and it must be presented with love, is not to say, oh, well, you sort of blur the edges. And, you know, that's a that's a false equivalency there, that it does need to be announced in its fullness. It does need to be announced in all its coherence. And it does need to be announced, in a sense, in an uncompromising way. But it has to be done with love. Because if it isn't, then it isn't authentically true to the gospel. Does yeah. that make sense? It does. It, it, it
0: absolutely does. You watch. I'm going to get flamed for this by somebody. Well, maybe. I I, I mean, it, it, as long as we're going to get flamed, uh, which I think maybe we are. Look, the, the, <laughs> uh, uh, as long as we're going to get flamed, I want to I want I want to talk about another example that I have been thinking about. Um, there is uh, one baptism, and by baptism, a person is incorporated into the person of Christ, the Church of Christ. And uh, there is one baptism. There is one church, which. Um, now I have to t- think about it. ecclesiological language which I shouldn't have to do for this point but uh, <laughs> there are within the within the uh, within the communion of the church there are per- legitimate particular churches which are uh, which are um, uh, legitimately governed by um, uh, you know a legitimate hi- a legitimate hierarchy and some of those hierarchs are in the c- in communion with the Bishop of Rome namely those hierarchs who are in communion with the Catholic Church and some of those hierarchs who are the hierarchs of legitimate churches are not in communion with Rome namely the Orthodox right so um, so that is the that is sort of the church and then you have this sort of category which as a canonist um, I think of as a, a, a kind of something of a legal fiction. You have this category called Protestantism. And uh, Protestant communities, uh, you know, Protestant communities are not recognized in the church's ecclesiology as, uh, as churches, right? They're not thought of as churches. We, we use this language of ecclesial community, which is kind of silly because it's another way of saying church. Um, but um, but what we're doing when we do that is basically affirming that we do not perceive. It's, again, it's this sort of analysis, analogous substitutionary language that doesn't actually make a change. It's a distinction without a difference. And, we, and sometimes we lean very deeply into that distinction and say, see, there's a difference. Because we're afraid to just say there's a difference. But the fact of the matter is the church does not teach that Protestant ecclesial communities um, are legitimate churches that are overseen by hierarchs and, um, uh, you, you know, with legitimate sort of authority of governance and teaching and sanctifying, right, F- for any number of reasons most of which is—the most especially of which is that those persons are lacking orders. But even if they had orders, uh, that would not sort of make their uh, communities, churches, qua-churches. So, okay. So Protestantism is in in an ecclesiological sense, and certainly in a juridic sense, in a canonical sense, a legal fiction. Um, Protestants uh, are—you know, Protestants, so to speak— are those baptized into the church of Christ whom the church does not claim to or who the church does not choose to exercise her authority over right the church the the bishop of I live here in Denver the the archbishop of Denver exercises legitimate governance over those who um, are baptized and not members of Orthodox churches and are domiciled in Denver, um, but 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 sort of by concession, the Archbishop of Denver does not uh, exercise his jurisdictional authority over Protestants. Neither does the Bishop of Rome, um, the, the Vicar of Christ on Earth, the Roman pontiff, exercise his jurisdictional authority over Protestants, although he could. It is entirely his prerogative to do so, and he chooses not to do so, as a sort of ecumenical concession. And that ecumenical concession goes so far as for me to, to regularly and routinely use something which is, in a very real sense, an ecclesiological and legal fiction. For me to say, oh, um, he's a Baptist minister. What? A minister is a person who is defined to have particular categories of ministry, uh, a particular munrah in the life of the church— um, so minister is a technical term that does not apply to him, and I can't make hell or high water of what a Baptist is in a theological uh, or, ecclesial, or, or cle- ecclesiological or juridic sense. It is a category that we have created as an ecumenical concession. But I say it. He's a Baptist minister. She's a Pentecostal person. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I don't say um, uh, a baptized uh, a, a baptized person attracted to uh, 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 schismatic and heretical theology, right? Um, a schismatic and heretical theology uh, uh, attracted a person, even though substantially and formally that is true. I don't say it because it's an ecumenical concession and because the church has learned since the Protestant Reformation that this particular ecumenical concession has, uh, for whatever reason, a greater effect uh, in the kind of ecumenical relationships that the church's authorities wish to have with those over whom she chooses not to exercise her jurisdiction, now, I don't know what I honestly, I' have not thought about that long enough to know whether I think that is the most effective means of engaging um, with, uh, with um, so to speak, baptized non-catholics or Protestants. I have not thought very long and hard about it because, I don't know, man, because I do know that if I'm really going to try to engage in a pastoral or evangelical or even just like human relationship with a Protestant, if every single—you know, um, uh, I I probably would sort of recognize that this concession or legal fiction has been used by the church in this way. I I am not saying that. I think that that is necessarily— um, it, the right sort of analogy to draw about language with regard to sexuality and culture, you know, and, and, and culture's langu- language with regard to sexuality. I'm saying it is an analogy that occurs to me. And as I think through this, it is an analogy that occurs to me. There may be objections to sort of um, making those two things comparative. I honestly, I, I, I'm thinking about these things. I, I'm thinking out loud on a show in a public way, which is, again, we may get flamed for that, but, um, but it, it, it informs my thinking. I don't know. I don't sort of wish to sort of wholesale jump uh, into a sort of position on this without having given it a lot of thought and sort of read and and heard like many voices on it. And most especially what I wish is that I had like greater clarity and the wisdom of the church about it. But I think um, truthfully in a certain way that will shake out over more time than has, you know, than has elapsed since the sexual revolution and sort of the transformation of cultural perspectives on these issues. So the point is, everybody's thinking about it, and the church has landed in different ways on different issues and uh, different groups, and um, and what I wish to do, what I wish to sort of emphasize most is um, that I wish to be in charitable relationships with people and if the language, you know, and I think the question of language are still being worked out. My inclination is generally to use this language of identify as. Maybe I should start saying that, um, you know, Ben is a Christian who identifies as a Protestant. I mean, maybe I genuinely should start saying that. Maybe it's more true. I don't know. It would at least be consistent. But the point is, the only point I raise is these are things that I'm thinking about and things that occur to me as I sort of meet through this difficult uh, challenge, which which exists. That's a very interesting analogy that had
1: not occurred to me before, and I now really want to think through all the way. I mean, of course, the thing that immediately up to mind is aha, and this is the this is of course the fundamental question of all ecumenical dialogue is what are you what are you dialoguing towards? Are you dialoguing towards the permanent institution right. of a Protestant Swiss Church, or are you trying to get the Protestants to return to the full? So I think that there is that right. that, that that may be an incredibly apt um, analogy. I don't know that it will bring any clarity because i think there are as many questions about what authentic ecumenical dialogue looks like as there can be for what it looks like for the church to
0: it does not bring any clarity to me but it is a point it is a data point in consideration of this question yes very yeah. much so yes <sighs> okay all right the one next more? one's e- what i said one more yeah one more we we didn't have any real resolu- we did not have any real resolution there the next one's a little bit easier okay The point here is that we're kind of thinking through and talking through these things. The next one is, in fact, a little bit easier. Here is a letter from a person, a listener, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but basically the person wants to sort uh, of—as we've talked about in the past, the USCCB is considering the consideration of the the drafting of a document that would discuss the concept of Eucharistic coherence, namely um, how does the Church deal with the the canon and the Church's canon law that says that uh, those who obstinately persevere and manifest grave sin are not to be admitted to Holy Communion, uh, this person is writing to us to ask, like, what are the options of what the bishops could say? He says, in one way, they could take a they, they might take an extremely sort of restrictive view on how they interpret that. In another way, they might take an extremely broad view of how they interpret that. Uh, what are they to say? You and I have talked about this before. You and I both say, well, we're not especially sort of optimistic about the clarity of a document that will come out of the USCCB. There's a lot of sort of political factions that go into it. We've said, you know, that, that when canonists think about this, canonists sort of Say that they are re- relatively clear, it sort of across the board say that there are relatively clear interpretations of the law on this question, um, but we have, we, uh, we nevertheless um, have been asked uh, about it. And I, for myself, Ed, and I'd be interested to hear what you have to say, but for myself, um, I was actually thinking about a document that Pope Francis uh, loves. Um, Ed, do you know what the Aparicida document is? No. Um. Pause. That's not true. Do you guys remember how we had a fight, uh, how Ed and I had a little tiff before we recorded the show? You do. The thing that we had the tiff about was that we started with this topic and it went on a lot longer than Ed thought it should have. And so some of what we're saying right now we've already said. Um, and so, Ed, do you know what the Aparaceta document is?
1: Well,
0: yes, but only in the last two hours.
1: <laughs> and I still
0: don't know how you spell it. Okay, fair enough. The Aparecida document is a document that uh, was devised by um, the bishop representatives of CLAM, the, uh, the 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 sort of Uber conference or sort of organization of the Episcopal Conferences of Latin American and South American countries uh, that meets together periodically. And uh, and in 2007, they put together this document called the Aparecida Document, which is a very long, very expansive document sort of on their vision of the life ministry mission of the church and the proclamation of the gospel. It's a long thing, and the Holy Father loves it. Pope Francis is often like making recourse to the Aparecida Document and saying like, we need to go back to Aparasita. We need to reflect on the words of Aparecida. The Holy Father loves it. And so I found particularly interesting because I think As the U.S. bishops debate Canon 915 and this question of Eucharistic coherence, there are going to be people who say, well, you know, uh, there have already been people, already bishops who say, well, we can't prohibit anyone from reception of Holy Communion because that's not in the spirit of Pope Francis, or that's not sort of what Pope Francis would wish for us to do. We're going to hear that kind of stuff. So Pope Francis loves the Aparaceta document. So I thought, well, what does Aparaceta say? I want to read to you this paragraph. We hope that legislators, heads of government, and health professionals— Conscious of the dignity of human life and of the rootedness of the family in our peoples will defend and protect it from the abominable crimes of abortion and euthanasia. That is their responsibility. Hence, in response to government laws and provisions that are unjust in the light of faith and reason, conscientious objection should be encouraged. We must adhere to Eucharistic coherence. That is, be conscious that they, the aforementioned legislators, heads of government, and health professionals cannot receive Holy Communion and at the same time act with deeds or words against the commandments, particularly when abortion, euthanasia, and other grave crimes against life and the family are encouraged. This responsibility weighs particularly over legislators, heads of government, and health professionals. That's a remarkably clear paragraph. There are questions embedded in it, things which you could ask as follow-up questions, but... In terms of a document coming from bishops, it seems to me that's a remarkably clear paragraph from this document that the Holy Father often makes recourse to.
1: That's insanely coherent.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, there are questions. I, I could think of a number of points where I would say, what do you mean by this? When you say cannot, cannot do you mean may not? Are you talking—but still, it is a very sort of good grounding and framing of the issue, um, and, and at the very least, a very clear grounding and framing of the issue.
1: If the U.S. bishops came up with anything even approaching
0: that kind of clarity
1: and directness of language, I would be floored. But, I mean, I don't think they're going to, notwithstanding the fact that, as you say, this is a document that, albeit I not one I'd heard of before, that apparently Pope Francis refers to all the time. I can see why he would refer to it if it's a document of sea lamb. I know that he's very um, very very lamb guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a sea lamb kind of guy. Um, but, I mean, I think it shows you really how... The fact that if you if if a bishop of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops proposed that language uh, in a document for a vote at the USCCB, you, I could I could name you four bishops right now who would run to the microphone to denounce this as um, against the spirit of Pope Francis, as not representative of the papal magisterium, as very bad, very judgmental, whatever.
0: And, it would be and interesting think, to see if they trolled by reading it without citing it, just like I have some language, and then read it and then be we like, "We have oh, well, some that's episcopal listeners." Yeah, we have some, we have some Episcopal listeners. <laughs> we do indeed. So excellencies, you can consider that if you it's don't, if you want, by now I think I'm a heretic the because I'm working out how to talk about these other issues. Yeah.
1: But I mean, I I, I think it goes to, I, I think it's, I'll tell you what, what year was that from? 2007. My God. Um, So this is after the U.S. bishops had already had one flight, one yep. fight mm-hmm. um, yep. where McCarrick basically managed to get them all to say, no, why would we speak coherently on the issue of abortion and politicians in the Eucharist. I I mean, this is the the conference of bishops' conferences for an entire continent, and they can speak with this kind of clarity and coherence on what is, at least to my mind, the mind of many moral theologians and almost all canonists, a no-brainer. What does it say about the USCCB that there is absolutely no
0: way in hell this language would ever pass? Let me read to you the 2004 language from the USCCB. The question has been raised as to whether the denial of Holy Communion to some Catholics in political life is necessary because of their public support for abortion on demand. Given the wide range of circumstances involved in arriving at a prudential judgment on a matter of this seriousness, we recognize that such decisions rest with the individual bishops in accord with the established canonical and pastoral principles. Bishops can legitimately make different judgments on the most prudent course of pastoral action. That is wildly different than a parasita. That is pretty thin gruel. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Now, there's a degree of truth to it in that it is ultimately the responsibility of the diocesan bishop to apply the law, but um, to say uh, it's the responsibility of the bishop to apply the law, and we recognize that different bishops will read the law differently, and so different people will do different things. It's sort of like, hey, we're afraid to say anything about this because we don't want to get burned or because we can't even work out amongst ourselves what we think should be said. And it's amazing that CLAM, a much sort of larger and in many ways far more diverse organization, and two, three years later was able to say something with much more clarity.
1: Yeah, I, and, mm-hmm. and I mean, to, uh, I'm grateful to you bringing this, bringing this um, paragraph to my attention because I, I have myself wondered what would a statement that was truly coherent on Eucharistic coherence read like if, if for example, they voted to have one drafted and the doctrinal committee of the USCCB, presumably, came up with one. Like, what would that look like? What's the best case scenario? I mean, this, this CLAM thing that you've found, is, I mean, that's it. Because the USCCB is not a legislative body in this matter. They can't, you know, prescribe Now right? Have... So all
0: they can do is yeah. state what the principle is. But as a
1: statement of coherent principle,
0: that, yeah. I mean, this is it.
1: Mm-hmm. And I mean, if the strike against it is, and I mean, again, I, I stand by my prediction that if you read this language out blind from the floor of the USCCB, I can name you the four bishops who go running to the microphone to denounce it as anti-Francis yeah but uh, to assume for the sake of argument that those guys you know all went out to go get coffee and mm-hmm. uh you know weren't there to object and then came back and said well you can't just single out abortion this way i, I my my sort of dream scenario would be to turn around and say great what else do you want to talk about Let's get right. coherent on it. Let's right. And this is going to, you know, this is the kind of thing. It's just like, to me it seems so wildly impossible beyond the realms of what will ever be considered. But at the same time, you're like, how can it be anything other than this? Which is why wouldn't the, why wouldn't the U S bishops want to have a document on Eucharistic coherence that covered everything instead of one mealy mouthed word salad paragraph, like the one you read out from 2004 that says absolutely nothing other than we don't know, figure it out for yourselves. God forbid we have an opinion. Um, what if what if they had a document that was as long as you know I don't know, forming consciences for faithful citizenship, to right. take an example, and went through all of the different policy positions that touch upon essential Catholic moral teaching and said, and here's what we think about the death penalty, and here's what we think about abortion, and here's what we think about—
0: um... And in some places, what they think about those questions would have a, a high degree of complexity, right? Some of them genuinely oh, yeah. would have a high degree of complexity. But, like, put it out on the table.
1: Yeah, and have the conversation in public. Does write it, it, it th- out. Th-
0: think in complete thoughts.
1: Well, take a page out of Cardinal Napier's book. Go so, ahead.
0: Dream you big. Say, go ahead. Sorry. I
1: was, just, I was just going to say about how wonderful Cardinal Apier was against You him. say
0: uh, you. have the conversation in public. Uh, something I have gone back and forth about for years is whether or not the public nature of the U.S. bishops' policy discussions on these things is an impediment to um, more clarity because people don't want to disagree with each other in public and those kinds of things. I, I – I, in one way, I think it's hugely important that they're in public because I like that there is sort of public accountability. On the other hand, I wonder if it leads to um, people being, you know, too timid. I, I hope this will be a discussion that takes place in public. I, I, I genuinely do. And the reason is because um, it seems to me that people should have to sort of put their, um, you know, put their put their name on their opinions, put, put their okay. name on their views. Um, on the other hand... Uh, it does not happen, and I hope that in as much as this discussion takes place in public, which it should, um, I hope that bishops will just put their name on their views, whatever their views are, and talk it out.
1: Okay, I here's my thinking. If, if I thought there was any chance that the U.S. bishops could come up with a paragraph or a document that was as coherent and direct as the CLAM paragraph you just read, I'd say I don't care how the sausage is made. Do it in public, do it in private, knock yourselves out. Um, but because I think it is at a practical level, impossible for them to come up with something that direct that would achieve, that would achieve the necessary level of consent, um, to, to be an official document of the USCCB. I think they have to have the conversation in public because if what we accept is that the current situation is incoherent, which it absolutely is, then there is confusion among the faithful. And there absolutely is. There's confusion among the faithful about whether or not a politician who passes pro-abortion legislation, who removes restrictions on abortion, who allocates millions of dollars in taxpayers' money specifically to allow people to procure more abortions, who decriminalizes abortion uh, like they did in New York, you know, so that if, um, you know, it used to be if you killed a pregnant woman, you could be charged with the with the murders of both the mother and the unborn child. They decriminalized abortion to such an extent in New York uh, in 2019 that you can't be charged with the murder of the unborn child anymore. You know, right. that, that, that's the kind, you know, to do all of these things and say, oh, this is, you know, there are people who are confused. Like, is any of that actually grave sin? Of course it is. But, you know, there people are confused about it because that's the mixed messaging they've been getting from the bishops. There are people who are confused about whether it matters If you're in a state of grave sin when you receive communion, because that's where we've gotten to with Joe Biden turning up for a photo call at mass every Sunday morning Mm -hmm. since he was elected. You know, our devoutly Catholic president, as his press secretary insists on reminding us ad nauseum, who also is in favor of the most radically pro-abortion agenda of any president I can remember. Yeah. So people are confused not only whether, you know, this kind of pro-abortion activism and practical assistance is a sin, but they're confused about whether or not it even matters if you're in a state of sin when you receive communion, which it absolutely does. Yeah, this is the level of basic confusion we are dealing with in among the faithful in the church in this country. And that is a it is an absolute pastoral obligation of the U.S. bishops to address the confusion in the faithful. And if they can't do it by speaking with one voice, then they have to do it by speaking in their own voice, in public, in conversation with each other. That is what I think.
0: Yupperdoodle. Okay, we've got to wrap it up here. Um, Ed, thank you for having a, a, a great conversation with me about a variety of topics, and I am glad that we were able to uh, work through our Initial differences for the sake of a great conversation. Palm Sunday is uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, what, are your, what are your plans?
1: Uh, we're going to have a very, I think, small Palm Sunday procession in my parish, but we cool. are
0: going to have one, and then we're going to have Mass. Fantastic.
1: And then I'm going to barbecue pork.
0: Great. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media, a JD and Ed production. I'm your host and Pillar Media media editor and co-founder, JD Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Pillar Media's other editor and other co-founder, Ed Condon. Have a blessed Palm Sunday. And if you didn't like anything that we said this week, write to Ed about it.
1: No, no, don't do that. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you.